welcome to Bookshelf Shelfies. I'm your host, Mary Barbara Hanna. Here we interview everyday people about their extraordinary lives and the books that influence them. Welcome to Bookshelf Shelfies. Today I have a very fun guest, uh, known to me <laughs> low these many years of my entire life. This is my cousin, Christopher Smith. Hi, Chris. Hey, Mary Barb. How you, How doing? you doing? Good. Good. Very good. All right, so I, uh, you know, I was complaining to Chris a few weeks ago uh, that I, could, I was having a difficult time getting guests on my podcast. Chris is actually also a podcaster, and he threw up his hands and said, "I'll be on your show." And I said, <laughs> "Excellent!" And I uh, booked him immediately. So that's uh, how oh, actually, doing. actually, she didn't say yes immediately. She said, "Hell no, uh, we're not going to have you on there." <laughs> I said, "I can do better than that." About. Yeah, really. Um, I'll keep you posted. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You on the uh, so B minus list, say, yeah. <laughs> C plus, yeah. Yeah. Lucky. I know your grades from Ignatius, so I know how. Yeah, works. yeah. So uh, does everybody else. <laughs> I was in, I was in the uh, the top ninety five percent of my class. <laughs> Even though there was only ninety four people, but okay. The uh, let me see what was I going to say. So the uh, question I asked Chris is, well, what would you talk about? Because I'm always a little suspicious of his shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> and we came up with a list. So we're going to start off with a couple of uh, questions that I have. So you'll notice if you are watching the podcast, if you're watching on uh, Facebook, you'll see that he is sitting in front of a motorcycle. And so my one of my first memories of Christopher and his motorcycles is he pulled up, we used um, pulled up to a house that I lived in as a kid when I was, and I must have been 18 or 19. I don't really know. Well, you can tell me the first motorcycle you got, Chris. Anyway, we went for a ride on this motorcycle, and when I was getting off the motorcycle, I was in shorts, um, my leg hit this thing, like it was, what would be right where you get off, and, and it, like a hot pipe, some kind of- The exhaust pipe. pipe. The exhaust pipe. Yes. And um, I had a scar on my leg for many, many years after that, because it just singed the hell out of my skin. That's, so whenever- that, That's called a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> It was painful and not as pretty. Yeah. Not what I yeah. was going for. Uh, this kind of melted skin you lost. Anyway, so going back to those early days, what got you started on motorcycles? Um, we had a photo of Frank Smith, my dad, in, had to be about 1952 or 53, <clears throat> where he had gone, he was a World War II veteran from the Pacific. And he came back after the war and went to Georgetown University and studied foreign service and then got a job over in North Africa with a construction company. Mm -hmm. And um, my sister Marie will tell you that the family lore is that he was actually in the CIA, but we have no way to prove that. But the photo is of him. He had purchased a World War II British surplus Norton motorcycle. In, so, while he was in North Africa. While he was in North Africa. Mm -hmm. And so I had always remembered that as a kid. So what he did was he and my uncle Jack rode the motorcycle around, across North Africa, up through Palestine, and somehow made their way over into southern France. And then he went north into the... Um, the area Alsace-Lorraine, 
uh, area of France where there's a town called Strasbourg. And my mom was on a Fulbright scholarship at the University of Strasbourg. So he met my mom over there and somebody had said, hey, Frank, there's, there's an American woman who's going to school here, you should meet her. And they met and they decided to get married and they got married right there in, in Strasbourg. And uh, that would have been in 1954. Marie was born in 55. So um, they flew back and, and, and that was that. And as an aside, my middle son, Tristan got married uh, November uh, 6th of 2020, but he got engaged to his wife in front of the church in Strasbourg, where my uh, mom and dad were married. I don't think I knew that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. His his wife Eva had just finished uh, medical or uh, a nursing school and wanted to go to Europe, and so I told Tristan, I said, "You got to scoot over there as long as you're in Paris, because Danny McNamee." lives in Paris, uh, and uh, Mark McNamee's up in London. So they stopped by to see Danny, they zipped over to Strasbourg. Tristan proposed over there in front of the church. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah, yeah, so anyhow, so I'd always remember the photo of my dad on that uh, military bike. And so once I got out of college, um, and I was working for General Motors and I got laid off in 1980, because they had lost $500 million for three quarters in a row. And they decided they didn't need little flubbos like me running around the marketing department. So I, um, I came back to Cleveland and because I was laid off. So I went to apply for unemployment for a little bit. And the young lady there said, so you work for General Motors? I said, yeah. And then she says, well, you're entitled to TRA money. And I said, well, what is that? She says, well, that's the Trade Readjustment Act. And it was in the late 70s and early 80s. And so anybody, any car that was purchased that was from overseas, not an American made car, there was a tax put on it. And that tax is put on to supplement the incomes of laid off American auto workers, which was a great idea. So when she told me this, I said, well, you know, I was working in the uh, public relations department, so I'm not entitled to this. She says, actually you are. I said, okay. so. I ended up getting, uh, I don't know, like $1,700 or something like that. Nice amount so, of money back then. Yeah, yeah, back in 1980. So I immediately went out with my American auto company money. I went out and bought a Japanese motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm it's sure that- way of living in the US. Yeah, yeah. So I bought a 1981 Suzuki GS 450. Is that what I was writing, do you think? That's, yeah, that, that's what you were writing. Okay. And uh, interestingly enough, I, uh, it was up by uh, Cam's Corners. Uh-huh. There's Ohio Cleveland. Suzuki. Yeah, in, in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and I never ridden a motorcycle before. Now I had driven a car with a stick shift. So I knew, you know, shifting and clutch and all that other kind of stuff. And I spent probably 30 minutes driving around the parking lot of mm. Ohio Suzuki, yeah, figuring it out. And I said, okay. Adios, we'll see ya. God, and that was it. Young. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no nothing, fear nothing, as Annie Pete used to say, you know? <laughs> right. Oh my so, God. So I bought that in 1981. It's probably end of 80, beginning of 81. I bought that. And I rode that. That was my 
single mode of transportation, so much so that I wrote it down to graduate school down at Cleveland State. And I would ride in any inclement weather to the point that I was riding through the snow on the opened I-90 in Cleveland. So much so that I rusted out my front fender. So I was probably the only guy in Cleveland with a bike with a rusty front fender. <laughs> and it's because, you know, the salt gets up there, rusts everything to Sam Hill. Right. So then, uh, you know, I rode it until probably 1987 or 88. And then I got married and started having children and it was er everything was put away until let's say, what do you think, March, 10, 10 years ago, eight, yeah. eight, year, eight or 10 years ago when I thought, I'm gone, I want to start riding again. You know, the kids are starting to grow up. Uh, you know, Denise is in a home and uh, <laughs> no, I'm teasing. So I- She's in your home, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. like a home probably for her. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately for her. Jeez. So I could not get the bike running because as the old adage say, ran when parked. Wait, when you're talking about the Suzuki from 1981? Yeah. Still yes. Thing? Oh yeah. Yeah. I never got rid of it. So somebody is had... on the line. I need to talk to her. Oh. What? What? <laughs> she, uh, she's been very tolerant. She's got say. the patience of job. Anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> anyhow. So, um, what happened was around the corner from Rocky River, just into Lakewood on Detroit Road, uh, over by Sloan, where it turns into Detroit, there's a little motorcycle scooter shop. Mm -hmm. So I stopped in there a couple of times and I saw motorcycles. And so I said, look, I've got a bike that won't run. Can you fix it? And they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, in the interim, I want to buy another bike so I can ride because I knew it was going to take months to get this fixed. So I started buying bikes from them. My first bike I bought from him was a 1973 Honda G, uh, uh, CB450. Okay. And then I bought a Royal Enfield C500 Military. So it's, it's a bike that used to be made in England, Royal Enfield, and, and, and they made military arms and they also made uh, motorcycles. And after the war, they sold so many motorcycles to India for the police and, and, and whatnot. Um, but they had to ship them over there that they decided to open a plant in India to build the bikes there. And so to this day, it's now an Indian owned company. It's oh, not, yeah. So they had this beautiful single cylinder 500cc bike in military uh, olive drab. And of course that just took me back to that photo of my dad in, in the early 50s. So that's what kind of got me going again on it. So I bought that, that Royal Enfield. And then um, I started buying more and more bikes. So I bought a, um, a 2001 Kawasaki Vulcan Drifter. And the Drifter looks like the old, um, and maybe your people are going to start to gaze out on this, but it looks like the old Indian motorcycles, the American Indian motorcycles, with the large ensconced fenders, it'd be great if I could pull these up and show people, but I don't, okay. I, don't, I don't have the skill to do that. And then I bought other kind of traveling bikes, but this one behind me here is- Now this one behind you is one, is your bike. It is, yeah. it is. This is my actual bike. And this one I just bought at the, uh, so Tristan was married on the 6th of November. I bought this on the 9th of November. So this is a Janus, J-A-N-U-S, a Janus motorcycle that's made in Goshen, Indiana. Oh, so I kind of remember this story. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So 
these guys built a bike. It's really beautiful. And, and it harkens back to board track racers of the early 20s, the 1920s and whatnot, with the elongated tank. And it's got, I don't know if you can see it, it's got a leading link front fork, which won't mean much to anybody. But as, as, a, as a beautiful motorcycle, it, it, it stands out. Um, I'll say that I like driving or riding different things. I don't like riding what everybody else has. Mm-hmm. So I don't own a Harley Davidson at all, um, mm-hmm. but I own uh, Japanese motorcycles and this, and this, uh, this Janus. So the, the Janus are all handmade within 20 miles of Goshen, Indiana, with the exception of, of the motor. Okay. So, so, so the motor is Chinese made, but it's a Chinese made Honda motor. So it's a 250 CC, uh, they're normally CBs, Hondas are, but this is a CG 250. So what does that mean? Well, the CB motors that were sold uh, by Honda to the Chinese market and the Indian market and Vietnam and all the Southeast, those people use their motorcycles uh, 12 months a year. Yeah. And you can see photos of, you know, eight people riding on a motorcycle or carrying, you know, a load of wood and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So these, so the CB motors are burning out, but the CG motors like this are very robust and can be fixed right on the side of the road. So the guys from Goshen, Indiana, decided to use this motor, and then, uh, so that that's the power plant. So a 250cc motor is not real big, but a lot of my bikes are smaller, mm-hmm. and having a bike, a small lightweight bike that can go 35 or 40 miles an hour, is pretty thrilling as opposed to being on a big heavy bike going 65 or 70 miles an hour. So I like lighter bikes, they're more fun to me. And that's why I've had 450s, which are considered small, um, this uh, 250 and stuff like that. So let me ask you a little bit Mm -hmm. about um, traveling on the highway on a motorcycle that doesn't go any faster than, I mean, your motorcycle can go faster. This one, this one can only go about 62 to 65 miles okay, an hour. So you it'll, could ride it on the highway. Well, so when we went to pick it up, so my brother Justin um, decided to, he, he was willing to drive me out to Goshen, Indiana to actually buy the bike. So when it was first, these are all handmade pre-ordered bikes. And the mm-hmm. bike that I got, um, the guy backed out of it. So he put, put $1,000 down and then at the last minute backed out. They were willing to sell it to me. And months earlier, probably three months earlier, uh, Justin had decided that he would drive me to Goshen, Indiana to test ride because I'd never test ridden one. There's no dealer network. They're mm-hmm. sold out of Goshen, Indiana, and that's the end of it. Yeah. So he and I got into his uh, 65 Mustang Fastback when we're driving down I-90 go- through Ohio into Indiana when his car broke down. And... Uh, so there I was at a rest stop. Yeah, <laughs> so I was in a rest stop. And so Denise and Tristan had to drive a car out to me at the rest stop and then drive home. And then I drove the rest of the way to Indiana and test rode one of their uh, uh, Janus motorcycles. So I was sold. So I said, whenever one comes available, one did on November 9th, we rode out and got it. So then coming back, Justin followed me on the way back. So we ended up out on, out on uh, a part of I-90 and uh, 
I was out in, in front of him and he was riding behind me just to kind of block any oncoming yeah. cars that are going faster than 63 miles an hour out on the highway. Yeah, so, yeah. so we, we rode it back. It was about 230 miles back from, uh, from Goshen to Cleveland uh, in the beginning of November. It was a, Sounds chilly. It was, it was a, a, a fun ride. Oh, it's good. It's yeah. really good. Well, it's, it is interesting, you know, so Christopher and I are first cousins, his mom and my mom are sisters. And, um, you know, when you grow up with people, you take a lot of things for granted, or you just make assumptions. I mean, they're just, he and I grew up in a very, very close family. And so I think, you know, that as you're growing up, and you kind of miss chunks of people's lives, but they've been a part of your life for so long, that there's things we never really talk about you know, like this whole motorcycle thing. I mean, I had no knowledge of this picture of your dad and telling our audience, um, if it's all right with you, Chris, you know, unfortunately your dad passed away at a very young age. So right. I'm not sure, how old were you when um, your dad passed? I was 12, I was gonna be 13. Okay, so, you know, this very difficult time to be without a dad. Yeah, Growing yeah. up with, you know, your memories is all you grow up with. And so to have this picture make such a big difference in your life yeah. and the hobby that you pursue. That's really, what a great story. I'd like to check back. You talked about Uncle Jack. Is that your dad's brother? Yeah. So Uncle Jack was in the American army up in uh, Western Germany. So he was part of the, you know, troops up there to, you know, Cold War kind of stuff. So he had some sort of a, an ability to get away for two or three weeks. So he hooked up with my dad and, and, and did that. So. There's so many amazing stories out of World War II about men traveling. Um, so Mark's uncles, several of Mark's uncles served in World War II and ended up in Australia. You know, they're from this little farm here in uh, a town outside of Parkersburg, you know, Washington, West Virginia. And the two of them, at least, ended up serving in the Pacific uh, yeah. over there in Australia. Um, one was doing submarine searches. They were part of boats that would go out and look for submarines and stuff. And I don't know. Wow. Yeah, really incredible stories. Yeah. And, and so it just fascinates me all the time how people live these extraordinary lives. You know, they left their hometowns. And your dad's from New Jersey? Yeah, he's yeah. from Caldwell, New Jersey. Okay. And it's, it, you know, Mary Barbara, it's not that they live these lives. They were, they were thrust into them. These poor people, these poor people like your husband's uncles or whatever, and my dad, they didn't have any choice. It was, yeah. you're going. So they, well, but I, I guess what I mean to say is you're going. And so as they're out there, you know, they're making something of it. Oh, I'm going to get a motorcycle. I'm going to ride around. I'm going to go see the world because yeah. a lot of these guys just came back. I mean, Mark's uncles came back and never left again. They were farmers and oh, okay. Okay. Um, educators and they never left again. I was talking with one of his uncles um, and Mark has longevity in his family. So he has at least right now, three uncles, four uncles still living in their nineties. Oh. Uh, and I remember asking them after seeing Australia and you came home and, and didn't you want to live some, I mean, didn't you want to go see the world? No, I saw enough. I saw what I needed yeah. to see out there. Yeah. You know, I mean, to your point, he didn't go voluntarily. So when he, you know, being out there, that was fine, but he didn't really want to go anywhere else. Well, some of us have wanderlust and, and, and others don't. I mean, you're a perfect example of, of going out and seeing the world. And, and uh, I... I'm just a perfect example. Yeah, well, <laughs> of something it, it, it's my show all right so we've gotten a very wonderful insight uh into the motorcycles i really love that background so let's one other on. thing one other oh, thing yeah, on on, on the motorcycles so this summer i'm planning if covid settles down 
to ride with a buddy of mine from Cleveland to uh, Great Falls, Montana. Wow. Yeah. How far is that? That's about 2,000 miles. Wow. Yeah. How, how many miles? I mean, let's a just day? face it because you are so much older than I am. Well, you know, how many hours a day can your butt take on a motorcycle? Well, that depends on the motorcycle. And I'm going to have to do some training before we do this. Uh, the, the idea is we'll do about 500 miles a day. So we'll take four days to roll out there. But I'm, I'm 64 and I should oh. be 66, but I was sick for two years. <laughs> So, oh, gosh. so, um, so yeah, so we're going to take four days to roll out there. Okay. And then, uh, once we're out there, it's a, he's a BMW rider. So these BMW guys, um, are, are not like the Sturgis people, Sturgis people, all Harleys, and they're a little bit more of a raucous crowd. The BMW are a little bit more reserved. And so hopefully it's going to be, you know, a lot of mask wearing, a lot of, you know, hand sanitizer, but. I was talking to Pete, my buddy, and I said, well, what do you do for keeping your phone charged? Oh, he says, they got a charging station. You go up, you give them your phone, and then they give you a ticket, like a coat check ticket, and you come back in an hour, it's all charged up. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's pretty professional. You know, these guys aren't out there, you know, horsing around at the, at the you know, Buffalo Chip or whatever these guys do. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there, there's no big rock and roll shows and, you know, wet yeah. t-shirt contests going on, none of that crap. Well, so, I don't think you would look good in a wet t-shirt, Chris. So it's well, you don't know, though. You don't know. <laughs> no, I've I won don't. two of them so far. <laughs> I have the um, ribbons to prove it. Were they, were they wearing their glasses? <laughs> no. Um, so, so you're going to have to do some kind of training. What kind of training would you do to be able to sit on your bike for eight hours a day? I I'll, I'll, just, I'll just leave here and I'll, I'll ride down. I've, I've ridden down to, see, to uh, Portsmouth, Ohio, a number of times. So that's about four and a half hours. And that's 225 miles. So I'll ride, you know, yeah, west you and right over to Parkersburg after that. Well, and you know, I'll have to find a 500 mile loop to go. So maybe I'll, I'll go into Indiana and down the Eastern side of Indiana and across Kentucky and into West Virginia and pop in, see you stay overnight and ride home the next day. I don't know. Um, you, you, you're not invited to stay overnight, but you can stop by. I, I do have a tent. I can sleep in the backyard. You, we have cows. You can sleep out with the cows. <laughs> and that won't be the first time. <laughs> or the last. Yeah, that's undoubtedly. right. That's right. You, you'll come back from this trip and Denise will have some cows out in the yard and she'll be like, you know where you're staying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm back. All right, let's move over to um, beer. Another great topic. So one of the very first times I ever drank beer was at a beer blast at Ogilvy Park. And do you remember we used to go up to Spidell? They were the people hosting parties up at the Spidell cabins. And uh, I mean, you're a little bit older than me. So being at, so being at Ogilvy means that you were running kind of with a different older crowd than I was. But this was, I'm, I don't know who had a cabin up at Spidell or how we even got up there because obviously somebody had to drive us. But I was probably 14, 13 or 14 when I had my first beer there. <gasps> oh yeah, right, whatever. And um, I'm hanging up now. Oh, you go right ahead. <laughs> and um, Terry, my yeah. brother Terry, saw me drinking beer, having a can of beer, and immediately reported me to my parents the very next day. Mm -hmm. Okay. A jerk. 
I was just like, are you kidding? It was one beer. And this is back in the day of 3.2 beer. Well, I mean, what does that even mean? 3.2 beer. Hello, I had some water. Yeah. Being, being the oldest, like Aunt Marie, Aunt Marie would have reported me too, to to, to Mary Lou. What is with them? They had to like, you know, rot, you know, get everybody out there. I'm like, well, man, I saw what they were doing. (laughs) Anyway, so tell me a little bit about your first beer experience. What do you recall the first time you had beer? Like not just Um, beer that your dad gave you to taste. Like my dad would let us have a sip of his Budweiser. Yeah. Well, you know, Interestingly enough, so I, I went to Ignatius and there were a lot of boozers at Ignatius. And no. I never, yeah. And I never drank in high school. My mom asked me not to drink and I said, all right. So I never did. Um, and a lot of my friends, you know, the Pat Fitzgeralds, Eric Kaisers, the Jeff Jensen's, Joe Hillenbrands of, of the world. And none of know, who will be listening to this podcast. No, no, they don't care. And half of them are dead anyhow. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, they, they all drank and I, I really didn't just cause my mom says, please don't drink. I said, all right. So, yeah. um, you know, in, in college, I drank a little bit, but not much, but when I got home, uh, and, 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 you know, jumping forward to the making beer, um, the Pat and Dan Conway, uh, who started Great Lakes Brewing Company were from Rocky river and they would also go down to Ogle Bay and have the beer blasts and the Moonies and all those kind of folks. Yeah. So, um, I started trying to make beer out of, out of beer making kits and I was, so just, you know, um, coming back to this timeframe, this is pre-internet. So where would you go to buy a beer making kit at this point? Um, there were little shops around town. Okay. Um, so there was one actually at Camp's Corners. There's one on Detroit road out at Westlake. And basically, to make an analogy of, of making soup, okay, you would basically get a can of, of uh, Campbell soup, chicken noodle soup, and you'd add water, and you'd boil it, and, and there's your soup. That's about all you're basically doing. So what we would do is get a can of what's called malt extract, and, and you, you cook it with a, a gallon or two of water, you boil it, and it's already got the hops in it and everything. You put it in a plastic pail and you bring it up to five gallons of, if you're smart, pre-boiled water, but I wasn't that smart. I just used tap water. You were thirsty, you didn't have time for all that. Well, yeah, and, and so you have to throw your yeast in there and then it's gonna take anywhere from seven to 10 days to ferment out. Mm-hmm. So as happens with uh, malt extract beers, is, um, it tasted like crap. And so you try to change things, but you really don't know anybody. And you talk to the guy who sold you the stuff and he'll give you a few tips and stuff like that. <clears throat> but fast forward to 1990, um, I was down talking to the guys at Great Lakes and complaining about, you know, my beer tastes like crap. And they actually let me brew on their, uh, their pilot brewery with the brewmaster down there. So I learned a lot more. And uh, so they said, well, why don't you start a home brew club? And I said, well, how do you do that? So Dan Conway and I got a homebrew club started. And uh, I remember it was, uh, in, it was in October of 1990. And Denise came down with me. And we had put, I had gone around to these brew shops and, and left flyers to put in everybody's bag. You know, hey, we're going to have a homebrew club meeting this date at Great Lakes Brewing Company down in the basement. You know, all come, you know, whatnot. And I was expecting maybe 15 or 20 people. 
Little did I know that the Wednesday before the meeting, the meeting was on a Monday, the Wednesday before in the plain dealer food section, there is a story about Great Lakes Brewing Company on the front page of the food section. And in the middle of the story was a little square box saying home brew club meeting Monday at seven o'clock. But I never knew that was there. And Mary Barb, I get to Great Lakes expecting there to be eight or I'm hoping for 10 people. Yeah, right, right. There's a line all the way up the stairs from the basement. We had 101 people show up. Oh my God, that's amazing. So, so Denise, so Denise, Dan Conway and I are up on um, their, 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 their little stage for lack of a better name. And Denise was eight months pregnant with Ty. So that's how I, I remember. Now, is the... that a beer belly or are you pregnant? <laughs> exactly. So that was 30 years ago, last October, that uh, we started the Home Brew Club. And is it still it... going? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And once I got away from leading the thing, it became much more successful. <laughs> um, there's some very dedicated home brewers uh, that, that are very organized and and so there's a meeting once a month. Uh, COVID has kind of taken a hit on the whole thing, but they will talk about brewing styles, uh, beer styles, uh, brewing processes, brewing equipment. Um, Can I ask you this um, mm -hmm. home brew club? Does it still meet at Great Lakes Brewery? It now it's so first of all, it's called SNOBS, S-N-O-B-S, which stands for Society of Northeast Ohio Brewers. Cool. Okay. So we're the, we're the beer snobs and Jay O'Neill, the first president came up with that name. And we meet uh, the first Monday of the month at the Saxonheim Hall, S-A-C-H-S-E-N-H-E-I-M, the Saxonheim Hall, which is an old German American club. Uh, first Monday of the month. They've been doing them mostly uh, remotely via Zoom uh, now, but any... Anybody who wants to jump in on a Zoom call, I think you can do it. Mm -hmm. And and joining the club for a year is a whopping twenty five dollars, I think, for and is for the whole like year. A Facebook page, do you know, or an inter, uh, website? Yeah, there's there's a face page. Uh, That's fine. I'll find Cleveland it. Snobs or something like that. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, but I'll so look. so the Snobs won the Homebrew Club of the Year in twenty twenty. Uh, our 30th anniversary and uh, so they've they've put together a number of of competitions in in the beer brewing world um, a lot of the very accomplished beer brewers are involved with competitions you know they'll brew a a, a style a porter a, a a wet ipa new england ipa a sour a saison whatever it happens to be so these are all categories that home brewers get very uppity about and and Snobbish. and winning yes yes and uh i learned early that my home brewing skill is so poor that it's not worth entering any contest just brew the beer and enjoy it so for instance with a, a friend of mine we brewed a um, a raspberry porter for the birdie here because that was one of her favorite beers that i made in in the beginning 30 years ago it was a raspberry porter so we brew for ourselves rather than for competitions, but it's, it's an interesting um, um, process. And I kind of spun off. So my, my brewing partner, Jerry, uh, was involved um, with making uh, uh, cider or, or you know, mm -hmm. collecting apples and pressing apples and stuff. So we got into making hard cider, which is a, a, 
a different kind of process and then making something called Sicer, which is uh, apple cider uh, and putting in uh, like five pounds of honey and then fermenting that out. And uh, so the honey gives you a lot of fermentable sugars. So rather than using uh, beer yeast, you use champagne yeast, which is a much stronger yeast and will ferment it out. That sounds really good. Yeah, well, it, it, it's got a very strong apple flavor to it. So you got to be ready for that. And then if you pay attention, there's something called Applejack that goes back into the, the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Um, a little history lesson here. So the, the people at um, Valley Forge had hard cider in a barrel and they would roll it out into the snow and it would freeze. And so the water in the hard cider would freeze but the but the liquor the, the the alcohol would not so they would they would pull that off and that's called apple jack wow, so, okay. so i also make apple jack so you just now, get your now do you make denise roll the barrel out in the snow or you? <laughs> we have new technology oh oh that's good that's good <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so what i do is i'll i'll collect a, a one quart plastic uh, milk jug and i'll fill it up and throw it in the freezer. And then you turn it upside down on a ball mason jar. It's, it's, it's that technical. I can do that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we, we've been making hard cider and, and apple jack and sicer and things like that in addition to the beer and everything else. So that's uh, that part of the really deal. Great. Now, how, um, so you had 101 people at the very first mm-hmm. snobs meeting, if you will. Right. About how many people are in the club now, would you say? I think after that first meeting, we probably retained probably 75 or, or mm-hmm. so. Um, and now I think there's probably even more. I think there may be 130 that have, oh, that have, 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 yeah, oh, over the years have, you know, kids grow up and their sure. parents are, are brewing and they come to the thing. And, and, and uh, so there's quite a few guys that started out in our home brew club that have become accomplished uh, microbrewers. So there's, in, in Cleveland, there's Market Garden, uh, their, their master brewer or their head brewer is uh, Andy Tavikram. He started out in our home brew club. There's a guy by the name of Tim Rastetter who uh, started out in the club. He was head brewer at a bunch of breweries. So Rick Seif. So the point is that, that a lot of these guys really were into brewing and wanted to make it a, a career and a number of them a number of them have made it a career here in Cleveland. And Cleveland's got a very uh, uh, active microbrewery uh, scene here. We've probably got arguably 30 different breweries within probably a 60 mile radius of, of downtown Cleveland. So that's, so that's a pretty... great reason to come visit Cleveland. Visit Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. Tell uh, the audience a little bit. I think one of your kids. Right. So <clears throat> uh, my oldest son, Ty, uh, graduated from Hiram College in pre-med and uh, took the MCATs and didn't do well and decided he didn't want to go down that road anymore. So he got a job in, in, a, in a reference lab uh, and they were uh, testing drugs coming to market. And what they were doing is to test the drugs effects on the uh, electrical pathways of the heart. That's what wow. they were doing for these, yeah, for these companies. So he was, he was a, a lab guy doing that. <laughs> so one day he finally says to me, dad, I don't like going to work anymore. And I said, 
Well, congratulations. You're an adult. Well, Welcome. Five, so guess like the next 40 years are going to suck. Yeah. So um, I said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, so we got talking about brewing. So I put in some calls to like Andy Tavikram. And, and so Andy spoke to him. And, you know, Ty knew how to, um, how to do a lot of lab things. And, and a lot of these breweries, as they're getting bigger and bigger, will put together uh, quality control labs. So Ty had a built-in understanding of that. So Market Garden uh, didn't have their lab put together yet. And so a place in Cleveland called uh, Fatheads, I knew that guy too. And uh, so Fatheads hired him. And oh. a- actually they hired him a part-time uh, for six months until he could learn kind of the brewing process and the hands-on and see what's going on. And then he turned in his, um, his retirement or his, his papers at uh, the reference lab and went full-time at, uh, at Fathead. So he's the quality control chemist uh, in the, uh, in the brewery. So he likes it's it. It's really incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's such, I mean, that's one of the things that fascinates me when people get a degree in whatever and as opportunities present themselves and you can say yes and no to things, if you're lucky, uh, you can be doing really interesting jobs that you never knew existed. It's not like in seventh grade, somebody be like, Hey, who would like to be quality control for a brewery? You know, you don't even know that that's an option. Yeah. Right? You just kind of yeah. head down this very generic path, but then, you know, you start to find things that you enjoy doing and there you have it. Yeah. yeah that so is really fun. great. So what is your go-to beer? Well, right now I'm a, uh, I, I drink sour beers now. That's, okay. that's my kind of fits so that, your personality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, sour. sour. Yeah. So, so sour beers are a very, it's, it's a niche style of beer. Um, but generally they're, they're lower in alcohol. Um, and they're, they're very lightly hopped. Um, but they're brewed in, in a, a way that gives you kind of a tart, uh, aftertaste, which I've come to enjoy. And 30 years ago, when I tasted a sour, it was awful. And I just had not had any experience with it. And just within about the last five years, there's a brewery down uh, about West 28th and Lorraine that kind of specializes in sours. So I started drinking their uh, Vinzig, W-I-N-Z-I-G, a Vinzig, which is a smoked sour beer. Which is very niche, um, but I just loved it. And then they, yes, and then (laughs) niche. And then uh, and and they've also come out with one called Mister Meeseeks, which is a blueberry sour beer. So that's I'll go down there and I'll I'll drink that because again it's it's lower in alcohol. They got a lot of in in the beer brewing world, uh, you know, high gravity beers, which translates into high alcohol beers, are you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine percent beers. People like drinking those. I just can't because I wake up the next day with a, a brain tumor headache and uh, yeah. it's, it's I mean, it really awful. Is, I agree with you. I'm, I'm more of a wine drinker, but I prefer to just enjoy a glass of wine rather than drink a lot, you know, and yeah. have a buzz going because I do need to wake up the next day and be functional. Woofy. Uh, exactly as Uncle Clark would say. Woofy. <laughs> Um, as we're talking about sour beers and so forth, let's transition to charcuterie and tell us a little bit about what that is. And I'm thinking like what beers or alcohol that you pair or match with your charcuterie. Okay. Well, charcuterie is the ability to, you know, 
make meat Save products basically. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And be able to spell them properly too. Right. You should see my scribbled note here, charcuterie. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, C-H-A-R, <laughs> C-U-T-E, mm-hmm. R-I-E, charcuterie. So the, the story behind the charcuterie is that um, the guy that I used to, that I still brew beer with, Jerry Francis, um, his wife is a dog breeder. She breeds Welsh Pembroke corgis in her home. And uh, I guess it's the queen's dog. It's yes, a little, it is. And uh, that's about all I can tell you about those other than he's got a zillion of them running around They're his house. Cute. So she became a professional dog judge and she would judge both in the United States and in Europe. Wow. I yeah. better find her and talk to her. Maybe you can give me an inside. I, I, I will. Her name is Donna Francis and she's super interesting. You would really enjoy it. Oh, I would it. love that. Yeah. All right. Well, we can end now because I'm going to <laughs> I'll give and you oh, call I'm her. Sorry. So rude. Exactly. All right. Anyway, <laughs> Donna Francis. Thank you. So Donna Francis. So anyhow, so Jerry was with Donna over in Spain and tried the style of local meats they make in Spain called, uh, what's it called? It, it's, it's a ham, what's it called, Marge? Uh, I'll, I'll come, it, it's, it, it's an aged ham that they, uh, yeah, Serrano ham. Old pig though. Oh no, what was it? Serrano, S-E-R-R-A-N-O. And so you'll walk into these, these shops and they'll have 30 Serrano hams hanging from the ceiling. That must smell amazing. Well, it's, it's pretty cool. So he told me about it. And then I went over to Spain with Tristan when he was a junior in high school uh, with the Spanish class because um, I spoke a little bit of French and I studied Latin in grade school. So. Um, you know what? Yeah, you're a yeah, scholar. Just, just you're fit a right scholar, in, right? buddy. <laughs> so. So anyhow, we're, we're going around and I see these Serrano hams and, you know, the way they cut them and, and serve it, it was, it was phenomenal. So by the time we got back, I told Jerry, I said, hey, we got to try to make this Serrano ham. So we went out and bought a book um, by a guy from Cleveland. And uh, so he tells us how to, how to make it. And, and so you go out and you get a, a hog leg, a rear hog leg. And... Uh, but you need, you need these special breeds. So there is a place over in Burton, Ohio, near Chardon, where Jerry lives. And this guy was making these, or grow, uh, raising these uh, specialty hogs that feed, he's got a uh, oak stand and the oaks drop acorns. So the deal is these hogs eat the acorns and it gives them a certain flavor in the meat, which I knew nothing about, but that's what they do in this area of Spain is they get these hogs that feed on uh, acorns. So we find this place and we call the guy and said, yeah, he'll sell us one. And how much is it? It's 200 bucks. And I said, okay, well, here's my hundred. Jerry throws in his hundred. We go over and we get it. And we bring it back to his basement because that's where we're going to hang it. You have to hang the thing for a year. So, so we followed the directions, which I think the directions was Cover it when in it's la- hanging in the basement, can you also hang laundry on it or use it as a no? Yeah, laundry. um, you well, it, you can. There's I there's mean, certain really is there a scent uh, associated with this thing? So it's hanging in your basement 
did he put up like a special area for it to hang or literally it's just like hanging from the ceiling it's hanging from the ceiling cool but he's 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 got two sides of the basement one is for for laundry and cleaning the dogs and bathing the dogs the other side is 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 his brew house i bet those dogs were fascinated by the hanging ham so the recipe says cover it in lard and then wrap it with um uh, uh like uh, whatever that uh, stuff is that you like a netting or yeah what do you what what do you call it using baking and stuff or you uh, wrap Wine? it nah i'll come up with it in a second i'm uh, uh, uh cloth uh, what do you call oh, that cheesecloth uh, cheesecloth yeah so so you cover it in in large wrap it in cheesecloth you hang it for a year like all right you know we'll do it so we got you know 200 bucks into the thing and uh, so it's almost coming up on, you know, we're 10 months into it. And we thought, man, if this is really good in two months, we should probably now think about getting another one because they, they, they take a year. So we went on, we bought a second one for another 200 bucks and lard and cheesecloth and hung that one up. And in a couple okay, of months, so I we want to come back for a second to the lard. Is it just yeah. Crisco? No, 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 like, no, 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 lard. no. Yeah, yeah. We, this, the, the, the guy sold us. Oh. pig lard or something like okay. that i don't know okay okay so he's selling you the hog leg and the lard that you're going the to lard use. yeah okay that we were told to get so yeah we're getting close to tasting the first one so we take it down take the cheesecloth off take all the lard off and wow that smelled like shit and i'm thinking man well maybe maybe it's just on it might taste really good yeah yeah exactly and that's not the well you know let's let's cut into it and 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 see how it is get my hundred dollars worth so we cut into it and it's like all right jerry you taste it first he's no no <laughs> no get get mikey to taste it right he'll eat anything so i taste it and i'm trying to convince myself that it tastes like the serrano ham that i had over a year or like three years earlier and it doesn't. And so we're checking into it and he doesn't like it. And well, maybe we'll just cut it off or maybe we'll wrap it up. And we don't know what we're doing. We really there don't know no where to go. There is internet at this point. Well, there is. I'm kidding. But, yeah. <laughs> but nobody has, has no, nobody does Serrano hams around here. So we finally figure out that the Michael Ruhlman who wrote the recipe book screwed up and gave us a serrano ham recipe for a parma ham and it was not the right one so finally we figure out no you don't wrap it in lard you have to wrap it in paprika and you need like 13 pounds of paprika to cover this thing and of course we've got little jars of paprika which is you know <laughs> eight ounces of get more <laughs> <laughs> give me give me a bushel basket full of paprika so finally we we we, we back up to the second one. The first one, basically, we had to throw away. Yeah, okay. You know, even, even Donna wouldn't feed it to the dogs. Yeah. I think there's maybe something we can do with it. No, so we threw it away. We tried to rescue the second one. And, and while we're trying to rescue the second one, that was the thing. We got to start a club of people doing this kind of stuff. So maybe somebody would have told us going in, yeah, you're screwing it up. Much like 30 years earlier, screwing up the beer, we started a beer club and you start to learn what to do and what not to do. So that's when we started a charcuterie club called Chaos. 
which starts, stands for charcuterie hobbyists and occasional smokers. And so, well, no, 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 <laughs> no. For, and for those who are only listening to the podcast, I made the infamous sign for what you might smoke. Anyway, wink, wink, sure nudge, nudge. Yeah. Say no more, say no more. Um, so um, I went back to the homebrew club and I said, hey, we're going to start a uh, charcuterie club. Who wants to join? So I got probably a dozen guys from there. And so circling back to the charcuterie, then we got a couple of chefs in Cleveland who were doing their own charcuterie to kind of shepherd us along. And, and, and they would have drying chambers where you're making sausages or you're making salamis or uh, uh, chorizos. And, and those, and those are, are, are mixed up and dried oftentimes solid uh, charcuterie items. And having a, a, a drying chamber is one of these things where you build one in the basement, you know, you put it in the garage. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and some people will get that old uh, refrigerator and take everything out of the middle of it and put a thermostat in to keep it at, you know, 57 degrees. And they'll put in something to keep it at X percent humidity with constant airflow. And, and they go crazy on this stuff. So we'll do. Well, it sounds we'll, like an investment. I mean, if you're going to spend two hundred dollars on the meat, well, how the, much? I mean, and how much paprika or whatever it is that you're making the sausage? The well, the sausages the, now have the sausages have become a lot more economical because what will what you do is you buy um, pork butts and you cut the meat off the pork butt, and then and then then you grind the meat and you mix it with with. Um, with spices and then you get casings mm -hmm. and and you learn how to do that so over, over the years we've done you know kibasis and we've done chorizos we've done blood sausage we've done venison sausage we've done brunschweiger wow um we've done bacon we've done um scrapple which i'll come back to okay. um and we've done um spam and, and so basic meat products that, that have kind of disappeared. So another part of my motivation for this was years ago, greater Cleveland, you know, 75, hundred years ago was a very ethnic town. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of Eastern European folks and, and, and Southern folks and just a lot of immigrants and every immigrant group would have their own little meat stand or meat shop mm -hmm. and they would make their equivalent of kibasi italian or greek or irish or spanish and stuff like that so over the years those those shops here in cleveland have begun to di disappear and why because grandma and grandpa did it and then they gave it to the next generation and mom and dad did it but the kids coming up they're at college you want to run the meat shop nope i don't want to do that yeah. so finally the parents you know have to retire and the kids go in to sell off the meat shop and nobody's buying these things. And they got that three by five card set of recipes that go back 75 years. And what do they do? They, they just take them and they dump them in the trash. Nobody wants this. Mm -hmm. So what the other thing I was trying to do through our, our website is to collect recipes of styles of sausage from hundred, from a hundred years ago to maintain this, beautiful history 
in the way of sausage or bacon or, or, or meat products that were really important to the immigrants coming over from wherever they came from in, into Greater Cleveland. And there, Greater Cleveland was a very industrial town, steel mills and auto mills or auto factories and, and stamping plants, heavy industry, very heavy industry. So it was just one of my interests to preserve as much of that as, as we can. So on our Facebook page, I think we have upwards of three recipes now that, that we've saved. Excellent. So is the, um, your website, is it chaos.com or what would your I think it's Chaos Cleveland. Chaos Cleveland, okay. Yeah. That's really fascinating. There was, there used to be, I mean, I, I haven't lived in Cleveland for a long time now, but uh, I remember there was a meat shop uh, over by the zoo up, I don't know if it was on Fulton. I can see it on, I don't know this, the roads anymore. This would have been sort of away from the main entrance. But anyway, it was the kind of place where we would go buy parts, you know, we would put together, we were going to have like the cheese and the meat and you know wine whatever grapes and you know you could go there and get the best hard salami um i wish i could think of the name of that place but I, i'm sure it's exactly as you say especially because it's over by 25th and fulton or whatever that crossroads would be over there yeah there's and a place that, over there called the sausage shop that had been a real big it. place yeah and 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 they would have so these are salamis you know you you can get just your regular run-of-the-mill salami at your grocery store but these yeah. are these are small runs. Sometimes they're made by other groups, but a lot of times they're made by that shop right there. They're making a salami or a chorizo, as I said, or a, a brasola, you know, the, the dried hams and stuff like that. And that's, that's very interesting. And then, as you say, your cheese and your grapes and stuff like that, well, that's a charcuterie platter. So now you go into, you know, upscale restaurants, charcuterie platters, oh, this is really cool. Well, you know, really, you can do it at home. If, Absolutely. Yeah. If, if you you have enough internets to go on and all that kind of stuff. But I, so I that, agree. I mean, it's actually one of my favorite things to do for any kind of gathering is to have that platter because you pick and choose. It's very easy to put together. It's so tasty. Yeah. You know, I really, uh, they, where I live here in Parkersburg, they don't quite have that broad um, ethnicity group that we had living in Cleveland, you know, with the Slavic village and, and those places. And um and of course, I'm living here at a time where it's um, Walmart came in and everything shut down that was individually yeah. owned. And right. so I don't have, there's no experience here of really great homemade anything because it, you just go to Kroger or Walmart for your shopping. You don't have right. But, mom and pop shops anymore. But much in the same way of home brewing where everybody just used to drink Miller and Bud and, 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 and that, and then they, they got away from that and enjoyed a better quality down in Parkersburg. I mean, you've got enough land that you can put together a little smokehouse. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. If, if oh, I yeah. could do, if I could do it here and run a smokehouse, yeah. I know that over off of Grayton road, I knew a couple that had a, a smokehouse in, in the back, in their backyard. And the guy I would uh, smoke, you know, meats in there. So that's, that's part of what we do too, is, is you can make the raw sausages and then you put them in a smoker and you smoke them for hours. So that's, so you've heard of smoked Hungarian sausage and smoked kibasis and double smoked sausages and stuff like that. So that is something that doesn't take a whole lot of money to get into. And, and um, you can buy smokers at your Lowe's or Home Depot's and stuff like that for not very much money for a couple, you know, for under a hundred bucks, you can buy a smoker and, uh, 
or you can spend up to $7,000 on a smoker if, if you so choose. But the, the, the point is everybody should feel like they can smoke. You can go to a sausage shop and say, give me, you know, three links of fresh uncooked kibasi or garlic sausage or something like that, Italian sausage, and just take it out and hang it in, in your smoker and do that for a couple of weeks and just taste it after it comes out and cools down and say, I like that flavor. I don't. Boy, maybe I wouldn't use cherry wood. Maybe next time I'll try to use hickory or pecan. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of places to have fun doing it without spending a whole lot of time investing in grinding your own meat because now you need a grinder, you need a sausage stuffer. And mm -hmm. I, I guess a KitchenAid makes a small version of a grinder and a sausage stuffer that goes I, on your I kitchen actually have you one know. of those. That's well, that's cool. You I mean, know? I've never used it. I just like bought like a kit and yeah, and that was I in can, the kit. I, so now I, you're inspiring show, me. Well, I can show you how to do that. It's well, it's come by on your motorcycle and that would be I, awesome. I may just do that and I'll sleep in the backyard with the cows. It's going to work out. This is all coming together. Yeah. Listen, but, we're going to run short on time and I want to okay. get to the books that um, you had picked out for us today. So tell us, uh, I don't know, anything you would like to tell us about books? Um, so I like to, I like to read books that have basically a historical background. Okay. So, um, the one story I'll tell you is I read a book called the worst hard time and that's by Timothy Egan, E-G-A-N. And that's a story about the American dust bowl. And I was just fascinated with this book. Um, and it went from 18, let's say seventies through to the 1930s and they carried the history through and things like that. And there's too much to talk about, but what I will say is the guy who lives across the street from me has taught AP English and AP literature for over 50 years down at St. Ignatius High School. So over the summer, I gave him the book, The Worst Hard Time after I had read, read it. Or no, actually I gave it to him in, in the spring. He read it and he put it on the senior summer reading list. <laughs> Thanks, Uncle Chris. Jeez. So, so, so yeah, yeah. So I guess the students started calling it, you know, the worst hard summer, you know, <laughs> the worst book ever and stuff. The driest. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of dust bowls. <laughs> but but I, I had to think in the back of my mind, Timothy Egan's got to wonder, holy cow, have we had a spike in sales in Cleveland, Ohio? I wonder why the hell we sold 70 of these books all, the, all in a four-week period. What the hell's going on? Boy, these people love the Dust Bowl over in Cleveland. <laughs> I'm going to write more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what led you, how did you find this book? What led you to it? Uh, NPR. Uh, oh, Diane, okay. Diane Rehm used to have a show on NPR. Diane Rehm. Yeah. Uh, I used to listen to her religiously and uh, every other week she'd have a, an author on. Okay. And so I listened to that. Uh, they had a guy, Pope Brock, and uh, he wrote a book called Charlatan, America's Most Dangerous Huckster, The Man Who Pursued Him and the Age of Flim Flam. Pope Brock, Charlatan. He's got a couple other books. And then I also read a lot of Eric Larson. Oh, yeah, okay. So he did Devil in the White City. Oh yeah, I read that, yeah. He did The Splendid and the Vile. He did uh, In the Garden of the Beasts. And uh, so uh, those are kind of historical uh, 
stories and I just love that kind of stuff. And then um, another book that I want everybody to, to get and read, it's by Timothy Tyson. It's called The Blood of Emmett Till. So if you don't know the story of Emmett Till, every American should read about Emmett Till. It's, it's an easy read, but it's a, it's a heartbreaking read about this young man that was killed in, uh, in Mississippi and back in the 50s. So there's that. And then the last one is uh, a book by David Wood, and it's called Around the World in 80 Rounds. Around the World in 80 Rounds. David Wood is a college roommate of mine. Okay. Yeah. And, and he was the one that got into law school as a junior and decided not to do it because he wanted to become a comedian, professional comedian. Funny. Wow. And so he pursued comedy for a number of years and then got into golf and he sold everything he owned and went around the world and played in the most Northern golf course in the Western hemisphere, the most Southern golf course, the highest altitude, the lowest altitude. And cool. actually, yeah. So so he's got this book around the world in 80 rounds. And if you know anybody who's a golfer, yeah, um, they just love this because the stories that he tells it, it's not only about the golf courses, but who he meets and, and physically getting around the country up into the Andes and the thin air and stuff like that, having headaches and stuff. So it's, it's really a fun book. It's, it's an easy page turner. I mean, you'll yeah. go through it in, in a day and a half and you'll say, Oh, I want more. But uh, so it's, it's a really fun book. So, all right. So I have to ask you some questions about your sure. reading habits. Okay. Uh, when you read, do you use a bookmark? I do. What kind of bookmark do you use? Um, a, a tape flag. A, a what? A One tape? of those little peel off little sticky things that points to where you, you left. Uh, okay. Okay. I didn't know what that was called. I oh, call it a tape. Go ahead. No, you call it a what? A tape? flag f-l-a-g oh, tape flag, flag tape flag okay thank you very much yeah so it's, you use a tape flag do you have a particular color that you like to use or any color is good um you know it depends on my mood sometimes i'm in my pink mood and other times i'm in my uh chartreuse you know yeah, okay <laughs> cerulean and where do you keep the tape guides oh do you have, like a reading chair and you always read here and so the tape guide is right there with you or um so the tape the Flag, yeah flag. yeah so so the birdie aka the war department uh has zillions of these things so i just grab a few and you are. Okay. yeah and and it's next to the bed or it's you know in a chair or on the couch or something like that yeah so all right so they're just kind of all over easily accessible right and how do you feel about dog earring pages in your books will you turn i don't know against just, the law just because of mary lou yeah you're not allowed to you're not allowed to write in the books. You're not allowed to underline stuff. And uh, no, you don't, you don't damage the book. So my mother, uh, God rest her soul, you know, I know one time I, I underlined something in a book. I think it was in pencil. And she chewed me out. Don't ever do that. If you want to take notes, get a sheet of paper. And, and, and I, I still do that. If I'm reading along and I don't know a word, I'll write the word down, I'll write the page number down, and I'll continue on. I'll go back and look up the word. And I'll go back to the book and see what the context was. But I'll, I got a sheet of paper and a, uh, and a writing utensil. So okay, the old fashioned way, the old yeah. computer. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm well, stuck. I mean, it, this is why I ask these questions because there are, you know, uh, people who are book lovers have very specific ideas about how to handle books. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, for one, will write in my book. I underline. But it uh-huh. started when I went to college and I owned books for the first time. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a kid, I never wrote in books or did anything like that. But in college, I think it just seemed the acceptable thing to do, get a highlighter and highlight your book and whatnot. Although I do also keep a notebook while I'm reading because it helps me learn better. Yeah. Um, not only to underline, but then to write down what the thing is that I've, you know, it's making me think about. Yeah. Um, and paperback, hardback preference? Just as far as what the title comes in, doesn't make any difference to me. And, and I normally read a number of books at the same time. Okay. And so when you do that, um, so I do the same and I keep a book in certain locations. Like there's the book by my bed. There's mm-hmm. the book on the couch that I'm reading when I don't like what we're watching on TV. Mm-hmm. And then a book that I just kind of keep with me or it's available in case I'm going somewhere and I will have time to read. Yes. How, how do you do yours? How do you sort your books? Uh, pretty much the same way. You know, one's upstairs next to the bed and uh, with, you know, magazines, motorcycle magazines and, and the New Yorker and maybe, you know, whatever it happens to be. And then there's 17 of them underneath the, the table next to the couch because I've got all sorts of stuff going on. And everybody buys me books for Christmas and birthdays. So I've got, you know, 85 books to get caught up on. And, and uh, be read list. But I'm like you, if I'm going, so this tomorrow, I'm going for my second COVID shot. Oh, so, so Yeah. So I'm, I'm, ta- I'm definitely taking a book this time because last time I stood in line for 45 minutes oh. and I was kicking myself. They didn't have something to read because for me, time goes faster and I don't get as annoyed if I'm reading. If I'm not reading, I'm looking around and I'm assessing where everybody's doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just raising my blood pressure. So. Well, they that could might be an this... opportunity to take notes. Just pull out that notepad. <laughs> I've got some Here notes for served. you folks. Yeah, Here's what you guys are doing wrong as far as getting everybody through the line. So, yeah, so I, I do like taking a book or a magazine with me. And, you know, my mom used to do that. Mary Lou yeah. used to do that all the time, whether it was to get her hair done or going out to dinner or something like that. She would go out to dinner with people. And as the conversation goes, if, if she becomes bored, she'd pull out a book and she'd start reading. And the other five people at the table are still talking and she's decided, eh, I don't care for this conversation, but I'm not going to interrupt it. I'll wait for it to come back to something that's interesting to me. Right? So, that's amazing. That, yeah. that's, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Here's I a little quirky. About your mom's love of reading because my mom also has had a strong love of reading and that's where I got it. You know, yeah. yeah. In fact, one of the big jokes with my daughter before she knew how to read was, um, you know, mom, let's go do this. And I'd be like, okay, honey, I'm just going to read to the end of this chapter, which really just meant I'm going to read until I'm done reading. Yeah. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Well, as she got older and she learned to read, then she realized that when I said to the end of this chapter was really, it was just my way of putting her off. And one day she's like, wait a minute, all those times you told me till the end of the chapter, you would just keep reading. Like, yeah, I would just keep reading. Of course. What are you talking about? <laughs> Some things are more important, kid. That's right. That's right. You're going to be there for a while. That's right. Exactly. And as you can see, you know, this is just a little sampling of my bookshelves back there. Yeah. Um, I love, and this is only, you know, I've gotten rid of books over the years. When we moved to Hong Kong, I carted off a lot because we were going to be gone for six years, what have you. Um, but I am, I belong to Book of the Month and I love oh, okay. Book of the Month. That is my yeah. one, you know, Mark is always like, where could we save money this month? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> that's not I don't know I'm not I can't tell you about that yeah anyway yeah. Christopher is there anything that you wanted to talk about today I mean I know we've only got an hour but is there anything you wanted to say today that we didn't get a chance to talk about is there anything else you'd like to say 
gosh. Or anything you'd like to promote, your own podcast. We should talk about your podcast just very quickly. Tell the, the fans at home uh, about your podcast. So Cleveland Moto Podcast, and it's and if you uh, sign up, it can also be found on Twitch, which up until two weeks ago, I didn't know what Twitch was all about. But so now, now they're able to, so we do it via Zoom now because of COVID. In the past, we would be all around uh, microphones in the motorcycle shop or around a you know, fire or something like that. But so what we talk about are motorcycles, uh, repairing motorcycles, doing stupid things on motorcycles and telling jokes. And uh, so that goes on, unfortunately, for about two and a half hours once a week. And uh, it's so, so it's, it's a commitment. Um, there's, there's a lot of adult language. So please don't, yes, please don't play it around your children unless they are of age. Or children don't play it around your parents. That's right. That's right. But you, but you can learn a lot about, about motorcycles, uh, larger motorcycles, smaller motorcycles. We're, we're very much uh, scooter kind of people. Uh, so small little step through scooters. Wouldn't and stuff you love like. to see Cleveland or uh, lots of places, especially when the weather is good, have more scooters? Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, I just, I meet you when, after living in Hong Kong and traveling a little bit within Asia, just the scooter world. I would love to have a scooter. Well, and, and you know what, scooters are, are, are just twist and go. You don't have to shift gears. So you, you, you got a throttle, you got two brakes, and a lot of them will have uh, areas, basically a trunk where you can put a little bit of groceries or your helmet and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it would be fun, depending upon how close your, your grocery store is, you know, go pick up some groceries and throw it in, in your scooter. Because it's so much fun to be out there. You got your little helmet on and your protective mm -hmm. gear. and yeah. You just buzz around and it's just fun. You know, it's yeah. more enjoyable than, than being in a car. So yeah. there's that. And uh, It's called Cleveland Moto. M-O-T-O. Yeah, Cleveland Moto podcast or something podcast. like that. You'll, yeah, you can you you can find it. And yeah, uh, perfect. I recently became a grandpa. You sure did. That was a really you know this is so again so back to being related and growing up with people. Um, you know when I look at Chris, I just see Chris, and I know when he looks at me, he just sees me, and we've been seeing yeah. each other for you know fifty seven years, fifty eight years. He doesn't look any different to me, and I hope I don't look a lot different to him. But now to see each other as grandparents, knowing that we grew up with our grandparents. And as I yeah. said, we're from a very, very close family. So yeah. we spent an enormous amount of time with our grandparents. And um, I've already conceived that Chris is going to be the same kind of grandparent, you know. Well, and you, you know what? The other thing, too, is I figured out that we grew up in a very loving family household, very supportive. Um, we had the same tragedies that other families have. But our, our grandparents and aunts and uncles all kind of, you know, rallied around mm -hmm. you know issues so mm -hmm. i i had a really good upbringing mm -hmm. uh by virtue of the extended family and uh, that was one of my motivations getting married and having sons i want to be a really good dad it was important to me to be a good dad so that was and undoubtedly you are your kids are phenomenal well, I mean, and you know i don't know what denise has been doing all these years but you my drinking dad. mostly <laughs> as she would have to yeah. uh drinking and eating charcuterie yeah yeah but my, but I'm very blessed. You know, my boys will still give me a kiss before going to bed, or you know, leaving to go home, a hug and a kiss, and yeah. and that's and that's just important to me is, is that kind of closeness because being a dad was really important to me growing up. So, yeah. thank you so much for all that you shared with us today. I like. What the hell all did we talk about? I don't I remember. Know. 
it went and it has been a little bit more than an hour and you well of course because you and I know each other but we there's lots we don't know like all this other stuff we just talked about and I feel like we could go on for hours so it is most likely I will have you back for more good fun. good I'll do my homework next time yeah and <laughs> uh, you gave us some really great books and so when I post this uh next Friday uh or Saturday I will uh, put links to all these books that you discussed. I'll put links for the, you know, chaos and Cleveland Moto and um, snobs. Snobs, yeah. So I'll get all those links posted up on Bookshelf Shelfies on Facebook. Uh, for those of you listening through the podcast on iTunes, it is always helpful if you subscribe and rate the podcast. It helps get the traction out there and get word out there. And uh, Chris, you and I will say goodbye off the air, but to all my listeners out there, thanks again for joining us. Well, also and- tell your listeners that, that we have a special prize for anybody who writes the best response. You will get a gift uh, prize from Cleveland Moto. All right. So when they go to Cleveland Moto, you guys talk, and then if whoever writes something on... No, they're going to write on, on your response. And whatever you decide is the best, I will get them a swag bag from Cleveland Moto, and if we find their mailing address, whatever, we'll mail out a swag bag. All right. Well, there you have it. The gauntlet is thrown. You are the first person to offer anything to any of my listeners. Who's the best? So you are. You are the best. Hey, hey. You know, uh, one, one, one last thing. You want, you want to hear a joke? <laughs> no, but I want you to tell one. Okay. What? So there's husband and wife. They had identical twin boys. But the family was in dire straits. They couldn't afford to keep them. So they put them both up for adoption. So the first, the first boy was adopted by an Egyptian family, and they named him Amal. And the second boy was adopted by a Spanish family, and they named him Juan. So years later, the mother gets a, a letter and a photo from Juan, and she reads, and she's so happy. And then she becomes sad. And the husband says, well, what's the matter? And she says, well, I wish I knew what my other son look like and the father laughs and says they're identical twins if you've seen one you've seen them all (laughs) (laughs) but i'm bumped and on that note happy listeners we will say goodbye and uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week 